Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Good morning, everybody. We're in a series called You Asked For It. And the reason I like this idea is sometimes people will say, well, you asked for it. Aren't you guys supposed to like hear the Holy Spirit and only preach what he's telling you? Well, yes, we do that a lot. But what I love is we got this idea right from Jesus because it was so many times where Jesus would just be walking down the road or talking to his disciples and someone would ask him a question and he would go on to give this lengthy response and preach to him and answer that question, you know, what does it mean to love my neighbor? And Jesus would go on and tell them what it meant. So we wanted to hear from you. What questions do you have? And so we based this series off of this uh, idea. And some of the things that you guys wanted to hear about is next week we're going to talk about what is heaven going to be like. I'm excited. I'm going to be preaching that one. I'm really excited to talk about that. Week three, we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare. Uh, week four, we're going to talk about how to be a better spouse. And week five, we're going to talk about spiritual warfare again because it was the number one response that everyone wanted to hear. But there was a few other things that were close to li- the list that we're going to try to talk about as well. One of those was apologetics. And that seemed to be a, a, a topic people wanted to hear more about. So we thought we'd bring in the expert on apologetics that we know, Mr. <laughs> Abdu Murray, here with us. For those of you who don't know Abdu, he is the North American Director for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, which is a big deal. Uh, So we are so blessed to have him with us today. Why don't you talk, give us, for those who maybe don't know you, Abdu, why don't you give a little one minute, your testimony with how you got involved with RZIM? Sure, I'll summarize nine minutes in a year, in one minute. Um, <laughs> I know it's uh, happy to do so. Um, some of you might not know, um, I was raised as a Muslim, uh, and about in the year 2000, in June of 2000, I gave my life to the Lord um, after a nine-year search into the um, various underpinnings, whether it was scientific or philosophical or historical, of the major religious systems and even non-religious systems like atheism and these kind of things. And after that nine years, uh, the answers were stalking me, they were creeping up on me, and at some point they just became intellectually unavoidable. But they were emotionally hard to accept because there's going to be consequences, not the least of which was my identity, who I was. I was very happy to be a Muslim. Um, I was a pretty good guy, didn't smoke, drink, do drugs, run around with women. I didn't do any of that stuff. Uh, but I became a Christian, and uh, that stuff maintained. But My life since then has been so fundamentally different because I no longer live a life that seeks to earn heaven by pleasing God, is that I seek to please God because he's given me heaven. Amen, that's Um, good, that's good, yeah. So I I got involved, I was part-time, well not part-time, I was full-time as a partner at a major law firm doing ministry part-time. Uh, CCC helped me to launch that ministry into full-time ministry, actually, through the guidance and, and, and uh, support and love and prayer and other things. And then uh, eventually I was doing some events that uh, the RZIM team was at. They liked what I had to say, asked me to do some more events with them. And eventually they said, hey, would you like to have your ministry subsumed into ours? And would you like to run 
North America for us. Wow. Uh, and I said, well, <laughs> sure, I think, and that's how it happened. That's pretty amazing. If you guys don't know who Ravi Zacharias is, I mean, he is pretty much the face when you think of apologetics. Yeah. And what is apologetics? For some people who don't know. Sure. Well, apologetics is just a fancy way of saying the defense of the Christian faith. In 1 Peter 3.15, we specifically get this, this uh, command, actually, to defend the Christian faith. Peter's writing in the context of persecution. And he's saying that you ought to set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. Um, always being prepared to make a defense or provide a reason. That word is apologia mm -hmm. in the Greek. An apologia for the hope you have with, uh, within you to anyone who asks, but do it with gentleness and with respect. So we are commanded, especially when it's tough, to be a Christian. And in the United States and in the West, it's fairly easy compared to the rest of the world, but it's getting tougher to be a Christian, especially a vocal Christian. You are to offer a reason or a defense for the hope you have to anyone who asks. And so the first thing about apologetics is to offer that rational defense of your faith, not just your faith, but your hope, that's the word Peter uses, to anyone who asks. So the command isn't just to be able to give a set of rational responses and an argument as to why you think Jesus rose from the dead, as to why you think the Bible's reliable. That's all well and good, but you're supposed to give a reason for the hope you have to anyone who asks. So the first mandate of apologetics is to actually live a life so hope-filled that people say, yeah, what's with you, man? What's with you? Lady, I want to know what's going on with you and why you think the way you think and why you hope in, a, in hopeless times. What it is not is telling somebody how smart you are and how much Bible you know. Because then it, <laughs> apologetics stops being the art of Christian persuasion and it stop, starts being the art of making someone sorry they asked. Yes, and that's what I want to talk about today. Yeah. And just so you guys know, um, we have a slide behind us. It's going to be text in your questions. There's a number... I'm going to be getting questions. If you have a question for Abdu about apologetics, about defending your faith, um, feel free to go ahead and text it in. We're going to try to tackle as many as possible as we can. And I, I love what you said because I love that our faith is not blind. Mm -hmm. It's backed up by science and reason. Mm -hmm. I love that there's intellectual properties to our faith. But I also, I love what you said about doing it in the right way. What I love about Abdu, especially, is he's got this balance between head and heart down. Because sometimes I see Christians and we're so on the truth and head side that we forget there's an actual person that, that needs Jesus, right? We, we get so involved in trying to prove someone wrong or try to defend our faith that we actually turn someone off. And so our head, we, we look at people as just issues mm -hmm. instead of actually people, right? And so, but then you have the heart side where everybody just loves everybody and it's like this hyper grace movement where anything goes and yeah, do whatever you want, live however you want and it's fine. But I love that you have this balance between the head and the heart. So we're going to tackle a few interesting, controversial things today. I hope that's okay with you. We're going to go for it. Right now, Abdu, it's such a sensitive time in our country. 
We have this political climate that is probably the rockiest I've ever seen in my lifetime. Um, you have this divide between conservative and liberal just getting further and further and further away. Uh, it just seems to be very heated on both sides. So let me ask you this. As a Christian, uh, biblically, what is our role in politics? Well, uh, specifically, it, it, this is interesting because I was just thinking about it a while back, about how much Christians divide life into the sacred and the secular, or the profound and the profane. And we divide these things and we think, sometimes we think politics is this profane, ugly thing. We don't want to get involved in it. it's mudslinging and it's by definition the dirtiest thing you can be involved in. Whereas we say lofty and just live a Christian life and these kind of things. We fail to see the, the mesh of these two things. When the Apostle Paul says that we do all things unto God to give him, give him glory, he actually lists two things, and Tozer, A.W. Tozer points this out. He says that the sacred-secular divide just doesn't exist. In the Christian mindset, it does not exist. You don't go to a secular job, and you don't go to a secular voting booth, wow. and you don't go to anything that's secular. You go to everything that is sacred. Tozer points out, he says that Paul says, we do all things to the glory of God, including eating and drinking. And this is the point he makes. If these baser actions of eating and drinking, the very same activities that we share with animals glorify God. If these things glorify God, it's hard to imagine something that does not. Oh. And that's something for each one of us. So when you go to the polls, when you get involved in politics, when you register for whichever party you want to you vote for or be a part of, or even run for politics, you do it for the glory of God. Realizing that every single person that you're actually voting uh, whose policies you're voting for, every single person who uh, you might actually serve as a public servant, every single person was made in God's image, regardless oh, of what they think good. about you or about your politics or about your policies, no matter how much they disagree with you. And you dare not, you dare not resort. I think it's a tragedy that we resort to this tribalism that we've resorted to. You know, the mm -hmm. West is sort of this individual, individualistic society. We get away from tribalism, and those are backwards people in developing countries who are tribal. Really? We're pretty tribal. It's always us and them. Um, so if you're gonna be involved in politics, and you should, biblically speaking, as I said before, you do all things in the glory of God. You have to, one, pray for your leaders, no matter how much you disagree with them. You pray for their wisdom and their guidance. I don't want to see our leaders fail. I don't care what they are. If they fail, I want to see yeah. some agendas fail because those agendas are unbiblical. But I don't want to see them fail to serve our country well, no matter who they are, because my children get affected by that. Um, so you don't do Christian politics. You do politics Christianly. That's really good. I love that. I love that. Because I think sometimes we get it reversed. Mm -hmm. Like we are a, we're a part of a political party before we're a Christian or being part of a political party means you're a certain a Christian or right. not a Christian, but it's really not the case, right? right? It's we're a Christian first, mm -hmm. our allegiance is to God, right? right? We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Right. I'm a Christian led by the Holy Spirit who happens to vote. Mm -hmm who happens to pick someone who I agree with their policies, policies and, and, and go that way versus um, let's create this us versus them because I see it so much. Like on social media especially, oh. 
I mean, it, you, you, will see, you will see a conservative post something, and you will see a liberal post something, and you will see attack, like shark in the water, like blood's in the water, the sharks come out. What, how do we deal with that? Because for me, I really don't want to be reactive. And I feel like a lot of Christians and liberals or in Republicans, Democrats, we're just reactive. Mm -hmm. You say this, we react instead of having a peace, relying on the Holy Spirit to lead you, seeing that person as a person, not, you know, an issue. Mm -hmm. But what, how do we then in a respectful way disagree or hold to our values that are true. Mm, well, there's a couple of things that I think that are so at play there. Uh, Kinnaman Lyons um, did a, a book called Good Faith. It's a great book, you should all read it. It's about how do you exercise good faith, meaning the whole idea of having conversations in good faith, but then how do you actually exhibit good faith in Christ, publicly speaking? And he says, you know, the thing that's going on right now is this new cultural ethos where it's the new cultural norms and there's a sort of a 10 commandments of Western culture. And one of them is essentially do what you want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But if you disagree with somebody, that's considered wrong. And therefore they're automatically us versus them. So do you see the, 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 the paradox? Actually, it's a contradiction. If you do what you want, so much as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, but then if I disagree with what you want, I, I just hurt you by disagreeing with you that's considered judgmental. And so now I become the pariah because I've judged someone uh, in, or their actions or whatever it might be. So in an effort to say everyone should get along, no one does. And that's the enslavement. That's the paradox of running rampant with this autonomy we're seeking. And I spoke about it on this very stage not too long ago about this. We're no longer seeking freedom. We're seeking autonomy. Freedom is the ability to do what you want based on what you should in accordance with what you are. That's what freedom actually is. Autonomy, two Greek words, autos meaning self, nomos meaning law. When you are autonomous, you are a law unto yourself. And if I'm a law unto myself and you're a law unto yourself and our preferences clash, truth will no longer be that which determines who's right and wrong. It'll be power. And it becomes this ugliness where we look at each other and attack. Social media is one of the greatest and worst inventions simultaneously of the past yeah, 30 years. I agree. Um, and because we use it, so we can have provocative conversations where we provoke a deep discussion, or you can provoke a disagreement. Which one do you want to do? Biblically speaking, the Apostle Paul says, and uh, I want to say it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, we destroy lofty arguments mm -hmm. and everything that sets itself against the knowledge of God. What it doesn't say is that we destroy those who oppose God. Mm, you are never to destroy good. those who oppose God. My colleague, Sam Albury, says, you know, when you read John 3.16 and 3.17, uh, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But to save. If God did not send his son to condemn the world, it's a good bet he doesn't need you to either. Wow, that's good. Um, that's good. That is self-indicting. I've had to indict myself on that one. <laughs> and so if you see yourself as destroying arguments, which is fine, but if you ever find yourself destroying people, that's when you have to check yourself. And Christians, above all people, I think, have a responsibility. If you follow the one who claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, and you don't have a way that is truthful and life-giving, then you're not following the way that has the truth and the life. If you click like or share of an article that makes your enemies look bad, C.S. Lewis points out that it's, at some point, if you want to make your enemies look as bad as possible, no matter what the facts actually are, you will have a darker and darker heart. 
Wow. And that's something we can't afford. And that's what we're seeing. Yes. We're seeing darker and darker hearts. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you talk to a Christian, it's like, it's dark, dark, right. dark, dark. It's mm-hmm. like, but we have hope. Right. And that's what you started with is mm-hmm. like, we're supposed to give an answer for the hope mm-hmm. that we have, right? So it's right. not dark, 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 no matter what, because yeah. we have a hope in Christ. Yeah. And something that I've been really trying to focus on in my Christianity is two things. One, realizing that people, when they say certain things, they're hurt usually. Mm-hmm. A person has gone through a lot of hardships in their lives. Their circumstances have changed them, hardened their hearts, created uh, some darkness in their souls. And so when they say something, we get offended by it. But, but what Jesus did so good is he understood that those people's hearts, you know, that, that they had gone through something hard and that's why they were behaving or they were so vocal. Right. Like he, he chose to see a person instead of just an issue. Even the woman caught in the act of adultery, we see that the truth was she should have been stoned on the spot. The religious people were right. They should have been stoned. But what did he say? He saw past that. He saw a person, not an issue. Mm-hmm. And he said he was without sin. Go ahead and cast the first stone. And he had grace. Well, because he saw her. And it's interesting you, when, you, when you read the... I'm actually writing a book right now with Ravi. We're writing a book called uh, uh, Beholding Jesus with Eastern Eyes. We're recapturing the, the Easternness. Pardon my using it this way, the brownness of Jesus. Uh, and the, the common flow of history has been lately is to think that Christianity is a white imperialistic religion meant to enslave <laughs> brown people where it's exactly the opposite. It is a olive-skinned, brown-toned religion that influenced the West right. for the better. The reason there's no, sec- there's no slave trade in the West anymore is because of the gospel. Um, and that has been lost in this. Now, go, to go back to your point, when you see, and I, I'm, I'm pointing out in this book, how often the Easternness of what Jesus did is lost on us. So they drag this woman out, who's been caught in adultery, and um, Jesus writes something in the sand. The only recording we have of him writing is something in the sand. Now, one reason, Ken Bailey points this out in his book, one of the reasons why he might have done that is because he, could, he couldn't write anything permanent on a Sabbath, so he's writing something impermanent mm-hmm. on the Sabbath. And the question is, what do you write? No one knows. We don't know. Ken Bailey, Ken Bailey um, has an interesting supposition. He says, I'm speculating here, but what if he wrote the law that says she must be stoned? Mm-hmm. What if he wrote that? He's like, this is the law. Go ahead. The first one of you who's righteous enough to execute this judgment against her, be the first one to execute the law. I'm writing it in front of you right now. I'm daring you to do it. But he also makes the judgment. He judges her actions as immoral, but judges their judgment as hypocritical at the same Mm -hmm. time. Then later on, when he's there in the house of one of the Pharisees and they ask him a question about the afterlife and all this, and then a woman breaks in and anoints his, his feet and won't stop kissing him and all this stuff. And if they say, if you knew who the man who was touching, touching you, the woman who was touching you, you'd you know, be ashamed and all this. And he says, do you see this woman? That phrase, do you see her, is extremely important because they would not see her mm. because she was considered lower than them. And he raises and elevates the status of a woman by one simple phrase, do you see her? So my question becomes this. If you're talking to somebody who, uh, and in the church it's safe to say, most of us are probably conservative here. But if you're looking at someone who's got a liberal view on things, maybe even a a, a radically liberal view on things, do you see her? Mm. Do you see him? Um, And if you don't, then see them. 
And this goes back to something that uh, I guide my entire ministry by this. Whenever I sit in front of a microphone and there's a, a, a young man or young woman at the microphone at a university and we've been to Berkeley, we've been to Yale, I've been to all these different places and they come out by the thousands, by the way, which is hope-filled. I'm so hopeful because mm-hmm. they do this. Um, uh, they come to ask a question to get an answer. When we see them, the reason why I think we can answer them, and we don't get protested at Berkeley, we don't get protested in having things lit on fire and windows being smashed, is because we, uh, uh, we, we uh, imitate what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, when he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. So the first thing you have to do is not walk by feelings toward outsiders. Walk in wisdom. Mm. Use your brain. Uh, making the best use of the time, he says. In other words, answer the question they actually asked. And then he says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. How many of us are guilty of violating that one? Um, And he says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. And this goes back to what you were saying. So you may know how you ought to answer each person. He doesn't say each issue, each controversy, each agenda, each policy. He never says that. You are to answer each person. Because issues, controversies, policies, and questions don't need answers. People need answers. They use questions to get them. So when you answer somebody, are you answering them or are you answering their issue? Don't answer issues. You are not in the question answering business as a Christian. You are in the person answering business and you answer them with hope. That's so good. I think think so much, if if a Christian could grasp this one concept, and I'm speaking to myself here because I'm guilty of this, if we could be spirit-filled instead of emotionally driven, I think everything could change. Mm-hmm. Too many times we're just reacting with our emotions, which everyone has emotions, but what separates us as Christians is we have the spirit. So we should be better. Mm-hmm. We should be really good. And so I would just encourage everyone from a spiritual point of view just to pray. You see someone on Facebook, you, you, you get in a conversation, ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom, just some wisdom on what to say. Um, okay, I want to switch gears because we got a couple questions coming in. Um, the other thing I'll just add to that last point was, I think as Christians, we should be known by what we're for, yeah. not what we're against. Mm-hmm. I think too many times we focus so much on what we're against instead of what we are for. And if we were simply just talking about what we were for, there wouldn't be as much controversy. Right. I think that that's absolutely right. Uh, oftentimes, um, if, you're, if you're seen as against something, you're negative, you're judgmental, all these things, what are you for? What are you pro? And I think one of the reasons why the pro-life movement is actually gaining tons of ground of late is because it's pro-something, it's right. pro-life. Right. And by contrast, you're seeing the distinction of what was becoming a more and more amassed darkness towards the idea of this radical idea of pro-choice. But pro-choice to do what? If, you're, if your choice is, are you saying it's actually your choice to kill someone right. because it's inconvenient to have them live? Um, well, that seems against something. So one reason why certain movements are beginning to gain ground in society, and they are, is because it's seen as pro-something. It's pro-human dignity. And uh, the more we're seen as that, I think that we're pro-truth. Um, the world might come against it for a time, but eventually it does get worn down. Well, let's stay right there for a second yeah. because you hit on a hot button oh boy. and we're not going to shy away from it today. Um, I'm pro-life. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm a conservative. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I'm not ashamed of that. 
But here's, here's, my, here's the flip side to this. I think it's because I'm a pastor and I have a shepherd's heart. But my heart goes out to a person who maybe has had an abortion and thinks there's no redemption, thinks there's no hope, regret, pain. And then you have Christians all over social media calling them murderous people. Um, how do we balance that? Because I'm telling you, Obviously, I'm pro-life. When I see this new lot, like what's happening, it breaks my heart. But my heart also breaks for the woman who made that choice and maybe is in this place right now just so condemned, so convicted, hurting so badly from this choice, thinking there's no hope for redemption. You want to address yeah, that? Yeah, sure. I was speaking at, in, in Winnipeg at the Human Rights near the Human Rights Museum, and we were talking about human rights. We had a summit, and we had them every year where we talk, t- talk, tackle a tough topic, and this was human rights, where they actually come from. And uh, they gave me the topic of abortion and uh, end-of-life issues. So do you have the right to end a life before it begins, and do you have a right to end a life at the end of it through doctor-assisted suicide or something like this? Um, so they gave me the hard ones. I was like, okay, thank you so much for that. Um, uh, but... I started off by saying it's actually a very simple, abortion itself, philosophically and biblically, is a very straightforward, simple issue. Personally, it's incredibly difficult mm-hmm. and complex uh, because there are issues like the health of the mother. There are issues that, that, that attend um, in, these, in these issues that we can't just simply say it's always wrong in every circumstance, no matter what. Um, uh, because health of the mother, for example, which one is going to live? Uh, does the mother have responsibility to care for other children? Uh, what's going to happen to those kids? That kind of thing. These are things we have to wrestle with quite a bit. And sometimes the decision someone makes is based on a confluence of factors. Sometimes it's based purely on selfishness. Right. Um, and that's just, I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. The statistics show, the more studies you do, how many women have a psychological, and by the way, physical effects to their bodies after having an abortion. It lasts. It's interesting that these things, in a fallen world, these things tend to last. It's not the solution to everything. Many things linger. There's depression, there's PTSD that happens after abortions, which is, by the way, why some abortion advocates try to make it this glorious thing like they film their abortions, uh, for example, or they say, how cool is this? Look how the science is working. They're trying to make it glamorous, almost, in a sense, to, to destigmatize it from being a horrible, horrible thing. There's actually a song uh, that uh, by a secular person, his name is Ben Folds. Ben Folds wrote a song called Brick uh, that was popular in the 90s, and it tells the story about, and I think, I think he's pro-choice, I don't know what, what he is exactly, but it's this sad, sad song about how the day after Christmas, him and his girlfriend went to an abortion clinic, and it will tear your heart out, because the lasting effect of what happened was, there's a scene where he says in the song, um, I wake up, the world is sleeping, but we're not. We get in this freezing, the car seat's freezing, we get to this abortion clinic, she goes in, she does her thing, she comes out, and we're silent in the car home. And his words were, she's alone, and I'm alone, and now we know it. Mm. Because something has happened. They know something has happened. And someone's life is gone. And they know it. Am I going to look at that woman and say, to hell with you, thou murderer? Mm. Um, What if she suffers? Now, it's wrong to take that life. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say it's not a sin. Right. But I'm also not going to say that there's no sin that Jesus did not die for. Right. There is Amen. no sin that he did not die for. Amen. And there's redemption offered to her. Do you reach out in compassion? 
or does she feel ostracized? Do you make the savior who redeems her from her sin and that man who's just as responsible for that abortion as she is for that sin? Do you say, this is a savior I don't want you to have or this is the savior you desperately need? Mm, that's that's what I would say to someone who's had an abortion, someone who's struggling with it. And maybe you are that person today. Do you see that approach right there, like how much that could be received versus some of the things we might say sometimes to people? I mean, that, just what you said right there, it's hard not to have compassion in that moment. I just re-listened to that on the podcast over and over again, that response. Well, since we're on a roll, Mm -hmm. why not go a little deeper into some controversy? Um, We got a question that just came up. Mm What is your opinion of the LGBTQ community and what's our approach there as well? So it's, uh, okay. Um, (laughs) Well, you know, what's interesting is that the more you look at the LGBTQIA+, and it starts to get, pretty soon it'll be the whole alphabet, but um, it's, the the reason why it's extending is because people are starting to say, I'm not what's called heteronormative, which is a fancy word for saying, I'm not the usual. Um, And for all of our desires to not label anybody, remember that that's one of the worst things, don't label me, I don't want to be put inside a box. We sure like to put letters to everybody's name, um, which in some sense I think actually denigrates the people who, are, who, are, who have these issues and who are dealing with them. Um, this goes back to what we're for. I remember I was at a public uh, university and um, was giving, I, was doing, I wasn't doing the talk, a colleague of mine was doing the talk on multiple religions. This is how interesting this topic is, it always comes up every time without fail. He was giving a talk on different religious systems, and he's saying they all can't be right because they're all saying different things. Maybe they're all wrong, but they can't be right. That was his point. And so I joined him up for for Q&A. It was him and another colleague of mine named Andy Bannister who was there. And Andy's this wee little man. He's a little short guy. And we're constantly making fun of each other because I'm... Careful. Yeah. Well, um, so we're, well, he's, we're making fun of each other all the time because he's a small little British guy and he's, I'm, I'm, he calls me the Ent. I'm always treebeard um, kind of a thing. If you're a Lord of the Rings not nerd, you know what I'm talking about. Most of you apparently are not because that would be funny if you were. Um, uh, so we're answering questions seriatim. Normally we all answer a question, but it was my colleague Stuart, then Andy, then me. So a young lady walks up to the microphone and it's my turn. And she says, um, I've heard you talk about different religions and different systems of belief. Um, what does Christianity have to say about sexuality or my sexuality? And she's clearly talking about herself and she's clearly talking about her same-sex attraction. So it was my turn and Andy ribs me and he goes, you're up, big guy. Like, okay. So I walk up to the microphone and it's pin drop silence because they're all wondering what I'm going to say. And I was too. Um, but here's what I said to her and she was clearly upset. She was clearly upset by this. So I said, you know, it's interesting that you asked this question about sexuality because you're looking at various worldviews and the menu is only so big. There's only so many things you can actually say is is a worldview. Even if you think you've got a novel one, it fits into various categories. No one's really all that bright to come up with a new worldview. I haven't thought of it in a long time. Even Scientology, as new as it is, is basically Hinduism with Star Trek words. Um, (laughs) uh, uh, And L. Ron Hubbard basically admitted that. Um, so she walks up and she says, and I said to her, so let's, let's look, look, look at your options. What's your options? Let's look at atheism. If there is no God, if there is no God, Richard Dawkins said, was asked what's the purpose of life. He says, we are machines for propagating DNA. 
It is every living object's sole reason for living. By your attractions and by the expression of same-sex attraction, if you actually go through with it and you live that way, you are not propagating DNA. Therefore, you are committing the cardinal sin because you are going against the very purpose of your creation. All you are is a DNA machine and you're not propagating it. So as much as an atheist might want to affirm your, uh, your, your sexual orientation or your behavior, he can't or she can't. Philosophically, it's bankrupt. You go to Hinduism or the pantheistic worldviews and you don't find it there either where you see uh, there was a, one of the members of the Indian royal family, Mandandra Singh, Gohil, um, came out as gay. They burned effigies of him in the streets and his mother took out a, a full page ad in the paper that said, if you say this is my son, I will sue you for defamation. Mm. Then you go to, a, she could even ask that question in a Muslim a Sharia based country. So there's only so many menus to pick from. So what does Christianity say? The the Bible does say specifically that sex is between a man and a woman within the bonds of marriage. It says that. The question isn't what it says. That's actually not all that controversial. As much as Reformation Project and others will try to make it sound a little more, you know, nebulous and we can wiggle room. It's not. Here's the question I have for you. The question isn't what does the Bible say? It's clear. The question is why does it say it? And that's the issue you and I have to wrestle with. So I said to her, this is what I believe about sexuality and why I believe it. Not just because the Bible says it, but there's a logic behind it. There's actually a poetry behind why the Bible says what it says. One, the Bible tells me, and I was looking at her, the Bible tells me that you are a being sacredly created in God's image. You bear his image no matter what you think, say, do, act, or believe. You bear his image. And there's no way you can't even take it from you. How dare I try to take it from you? by saying you're less than me. There's no way. That's the first thing. So if you're sacred, if you're a sacred being, and the only way to create a being like you is through sex, if you are the product and you're sacred, then the process by which you came about is itself sacred. If sex is sacred, then it has to be protected. Because if something doesn't have boundaries, then it becomes common. If it can be whatever you want, whatever you want it to be that, and it becomes whatever, it becomes common, then doesn't it? If it becomes common, then it loses its specialness. It loses its its sacredness. And sex is to be protected. Why? Because you are a being created in God's image. But there's more to it than that. The beauty of what the Bible says is that when a man and a woman come together in sexual union under the bonds of marriage, the two become one flesh. You know what that word for union is, for one, one flesh? It's the Hebrew word echad. You know what echad means? It doesn't mean numerically one. There's another word in Hebrew for one, numerical. It's yachid. If God wanted to show us that you become a numerically one flesh, then he would say you become yachid. He says echad. Echad means unified. It means a unity of diversities. So when the spies come back from Israel, from the, from the land of Canaan, and they want to show the grapes, they bring an echad of grapes, one bunch of, of grapes. There is a union of diversity within the bonds of marriage. Men and women are biologically, emotionally, and mentally different. And it's a glorious pairing of the complementarity of these two things. If you don't know that women, women and men are different, obviously biologically, but if you don't know they're different mentally, just get married and you'll find out. Um, <laughs> I'm not gonna say amen. Yeah. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd get me in trouble The later. best parts of her are part of, but here's my point. The Bible says that God created them in his image. It's interesting when Jesus quotes it and when the, when, when, the, when the Bible says it in the beginning. In his image, he created them. Male and female, he created them in his image. Male and female, he created them. In other words, a female reflects God's image in her femaleness. 
A male reflects God's image in his maleness. Mm-hmm. So there's something about God that is injected into a male that is different, that's something about God that's injected into a female, mm-hmm. which is why the Bible describes God as father and son. But it also says, oh, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her womb. And it caused the, caused the creation, the firstborn or, the, or, or the, the child of God. You are born of God. We use these female and male things about God. And so a male is created in his image and a female is, which means this. When I am in a sexual union with someone who's female, my wife, I get to exhibit the unity of diversity of what it means to actually reflect something of the divine nature himself. And when I take my wife out and I replace someone just like me in, I rob not only myself, but the other person of the unity of diversity. And this is the beauty of it. It reflects the divine nature of who God is in the Bible. One God exhibiting three persons. One God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three minds sharing the same nature. God himself is a unity of diversities. Marriage is the the, uh, opportunity to reflect that. So first, you're sacred and the process is sacred. Second, you you reflect the divine in the unity of diversities of a marriage. And third, at the end of the world comes the judgment, but the real end of this life and the beginning of that which is to come is a wedding. And a unity of diversities, once again, the sinful, broken, temporal, self-seeking bride is now washed in white to live forever in a perfect bliss with the uncreated, pure, holy, gracious, gracious God, a unity of diversities, once again. If I were to tell her, I told her this, if I were to tell you that living in that sense that you'd like to live in and have your sexuality affirmed, it was good, I would be telling you that you don't need any of that. But God wants that for you. She was crying her eyes out when we prayed afterwards together. I've Mm -hmm. seen this time and again. Stop saying what you're against. When you say, oh, we're anti-LGBTQI, whatever it is. When you say, even when you're pro, I'm pro-institution of marriage, yawn, I mean, really, seriously, I'm (laughs) pro-traditional marriage? (laughs) They're pro-love, you're pro-traditional marriage. Who wins that debate publicly? Right. But if you're pro-people, if you're pro-people who are made in God's image and you say biblical sexuality is meant to augment your dignity, not hide your dignity. It's not arbitrary, but it's poetry. You are God's poema, as the Bible says. You are his poem. And he wants that for you. And I've seen many people I've talked to understand this. So what do I think of the community? I think that they are people for whom Christ died. Amen. I think they are people that the church doesn't need to reach down to. We need to reach out to. Wow, that's good. Stop reaching down, start reaching out. That's good. There's two things I wanna, I wanna ask you off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, one is, it seems like there's a desensitization to sexuality we focus a lot, a lot of conservatives tend to point the finger at the LGBTQ, but really uh, pornography is the highest viewed by men and women it's ever been. Um, Sex outside of marriage is is just the norm. Um, Friends with benefits just hooking up all the time. That seems to be rampant as well. What, what What is our response to that? 
I was just uh, in Amarillo, Texas. We did an event. We do these youth events. We have a thing called Reboot, then Remind, and then Refresh. We did Remind here a few years ago. Um, at the end of the Reboot in Amarillo, I prayed with a lot of teenagers over sexual... These are people who have gone to church their whole life. They're devoted followers of Christ. And they've said, I'm sexually broken. Guys and girls, in various ways. Um, so this is not... This, is, this goes back to the don't reach down, reach out kind of a thing. Uh, Janelle Williams Paris has a book called The End of Sexual Orientation, or Sexual Identity, I think it is. And she makes a point, and I point out in my book, Saving Truth, um, we use these words heterosexual and homosexual to mean something different. We, what we, when we say heterosexual, we mean sexually moral, not sexually normal. Hetero, homosexual, we think, is sexually immoral. You can be, I know plenty of heterosexual right. people who are way more sexually immoral than any gay person I know. Right. So when you use these labels in this self-judgmental way, uh, one person said it this way, if homosexuality binds us to sin, heterosexuality blinds us to sin. Mm. Look internally, and before we judge someone, um, make sure that, you know, Pornhub and Playboy.com is closed on your browser. Mm. And I say this to you, clearing your history does not clear your conscience. Mm. Only Christ does that. Right. This brokenness is important because we fail to see sex as sacred and we see it as incidental to something. We also have romanticized everything where um, uh, the culmination of any relationship has to result in sexual union. Um, if that were the case, then Jesus didn't have good relationships. Right. And neither did Paul. And neither one of these two men were broken. Right. Um, so we have to recapture the beauty and sacredness of sex um, and make it special once again, but recognize that we have as much of a problem as anybody else does. Um, when you look outside and you say, those people, um, you're not looking internally. There was an article written, and I'm forgetting the name of the guy who wrote it, and I, I quite quote it in my book, when he says, I pray, he's, a, he's, he's saying this attractive, because I prayed for God to make me sexually, uh, I prayed for God to take away my homosexuality. He didn't answer, here's why. And he said at the end, I kept on praying for God to make me sexually normal so I could run around, meet girls like my buddies, flirt with them you know, with, with impunity, and eventually have sex. He said, I prayed for God to do that. And why would God ever answer that prayer? Hmm. He says, I, didn't pr I forgot to pray to be sexually moral, hmm. not sexually normal. I think we need to repent and be sexually moral once again. You will never, this is the reality of life. This is it, and I've seen it time and again. The credibility of the message is always judged by the integrity of the messenger. Hmm. You are not gonna be perfect. You are not called to be perfect. Paul wasn't perfect, and yet his message spread. Don't, don't say I can't preach because I've got my stuff, I, hmm. I'm a mess. Don't do that. When I say preach, I don't mean stand on a platform and be a pastor. There's a lot of biblical mandate about what it takes to be a pastor um, or, a, or a leader or a teacher. But you can be an evangelist, even right. if you're not perfect. In fact, let me suggest this to you. You can be an effective evangelist because you're not perfect. Right. That's the important part of it. Yeah, that's good. What I'm finding, too, is that a lot of this sexual addiction or a lot of this is, is a big escape. It's an escape. We're, in our society, sex is a drug now. Mm 
You know, just like heroin or anything else that's addictive, it's I have these internal spiders, these internal soul issues that I've never resolved. Uh, I have unforgiveness. I have these bitterness. I've been wounded by circumstances. Maybe God hasn't answered my prayers. I've shoved this all down. I've never dealt with it. And so what I do because I feel... I feel depressed, I feel sad, I I never feel good enough, I escape to a drug, I escape to sex, I escape to these things that at least in a moment make me feel good. And if that's you, you need help. You need help. It's just like someone who, who... you know, has a heroin addiction or has a drug addiction or abuses alcohol, they go into rehabilitation. They go into something that helps them overcome. And and we need this as well here. If you find yourself addicted and not able to control um, pornography or sex or anything that happens there, you've got to be able to recognize as I need some help and get it out of the darkness and into the light, because anything that has light and the darkness kind of falls away, get it, tell someone, get it out, and and get guided to to some inner healing. You know, it's funny, you're talking about spiritual warfare twice uh, during the series, and we've already talked about it numerous times as the underpinning of what's going on here. You know, um, we think about homosexuality or whatever, homosexual behavior being an abomination. Pride's an abomination, too. We don't pull people aside and say, you know, the Lord needs to deal with you about your pride for it is an abomination. Right. We don't do that. The Bible says it is. Right. Um, or gossip. Why, or right. gossip. Absolutely. <laughs> One, uh, a, an abomination most of us are guilty of. In fact, I would even dare say all of us because we're human beings. But what I think is important is statistically speaking, in a room this size, uh, 60% of you have a prone problem. Mm. That's just the way it is. Sorry. Mm-hmm. just is. Which means... And what level that is, is, you, is up to you. And not up to you. It's, it's individual to you. Right. But if that means you watch it once a week, once a day, multiple times a day, once a month, still an issue. Um, uh, and there becomes this self-medicating thing. It becomes mm-hmm. self-medicating. And you need help. There's statistics that show, studies that show that what happens to your brain, mm-hmm. pornography actually changes pathways in your brain and releases neurochemicals that very much mimic the kind of things that heroin will do to you or other drugs will do to you. But here's why I think this is even more insidious, why it's a spiritual warfare issue. One, because shame is attendant to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost considered like, it's, it's, it's shameful, yes, when you're addicted to some kind of a chemical, whether it's alcohol or, or something else. We do feel a sense of shame because we let this thing get the best of us. But we know that there's help and there's not a moral judgment always attached to it. With pornography, especially in the church, there's a moral judgment attached to it. Like, right. I can't even trust my kids around you kind of a thing. Um, when the person who's doing that probably has as much of a porn addiction as you do. Um, the devil uses that to keep you from getting help. Yes. He, he wants you to keep it in the dark. Um, sin does not get cured in the dark. It just festers and it's like mold. Yeah. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and we, have to, we need to, to combat that. But I would say this, the porn issue is such an important issue because with a drug, it's an obvious outward manifestation that happens and it's a chemical dependency and you can use your mind, although as difficult as it is, to overcome it. That's right. With pornography, it changes your mind. Mm. So the very tool that God has given you to use to overcome an addiction is the very thing that is now corrupted. And that's why you need the spirit and you need someone else to talk mm. to. You need someone else to talk to yeah. uh, to help. If, you, if you're trying to deal with it in private, 
it will not work. I'm sorry, it will not. Yeah, and that's a good point. And I just want everyone to know in this place, if you deal with a strong pornography addiction or you struggle sexual, sexually, you're not a bad person. You're not a bad Christian. You're not, we, we get so caught up in shame that says, I am the sum of my mistakes. Mm-hmm. That's right. what shame is, is. It's not I'm a good person who happens to make a bad choice. I'm a terrible person who sometimes happens to do good is shame. And that's not who you were called to be. That's not what Jesus did for us on the cross. So there's hope. I've seen it. I've counseled people through it. There is hope and redemption. So if you are going through something like that, don't wait anymore. Get some help. There is freedom. It's possible for you to live a life free of this. Well, we got we to gotta move on. Um, we only have a few more minutes, and I want to get a couple of these questions. So can we do some quick rounds? Sure, let's do it. One of them is this, and it was the second part to what I want to ask you, is we talked a lot about how the Bible says a lot of these things that we're talking about um, is the reason they're wrong or right. But now a lot of people are throwing out the Bible. Yeah. Like it was old, it, you know, it has errors, it's not something we can trust. What do, we say to the, what do we say to that? Well, the first thing I think is that um, the Bible is our eternal contemporary. So it's historical, but it's constantly contemporary. The more I write about it, the more I'm convinced that it speaks to issues today um, in so many ways. So quickly, let me say this. First, on the errors issue. Whenever someone says it's got errors, the first thing I ask them is where? Mm-hmm. Point one out to me. It's extremely easy to say that. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's full of contradictions. Okay, give me one. I'd like to know which one. Which two verses do you think don't work together? Um, or which two stories don't work together. Now, if they give you one, great. Now there's ways to actually in, employ your Bible studies. If you're studying the Word, you'll notice hey, these things actually do fit together. And there are plenty of helps for that too. So the first thing is this. When someone says it's outmoded, outdated, sexist, bad, and dumb, um, <laughs> ask somebody to back that up. The person who makes the claim bears the burden of proof. So they say the Bible's full of contradictions. Don't defend the Bible. Make them defend their position. And you'll find out quite, quite, quite quickly that all, most of the time, people, don't, people just said what they heard. Um, second, if they do point one out, now try to answer it. And there's plenty of ways to do this. There's plenty of books like um, uh, the Case for Christ Bible Study. Um, the uh, Apologetic Study Bible is a great little uh, tool to help you go through contradictions or seeming contradictions of the Bible and work through them. Uh, but if they say it's outmoded and outdated too, I point out some things that are amazingly contemporary. And real quick. Um, first, the way Jesus actually treats women. The Me Too movement is an incredible movement that has exposed the way certain people have lived in this autonomous culture where we take our preferences and impose it on somebody because I have power. There is a validity to the, to the, to the, to the sacredness and the beauty of women and the dignity of women in there. One story all by itself, Mary and Martha. When Martha is busy, busy, busy doing women's work, Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. A phrase, by the way, used for disciples, people who sit at someone's feet, is considered an honor to sit at someone's feet because you're considered a disciple. Women weren't given education uh, to the extent men were, or even close, that men were then. And then when Martha, who is so now ingrained into the sexism of her day, that tells her, "You you belong there, not at the seat of learning, she even is so offended by her sister. Not because she's lazy. That's not the reason she's offended. She's offended because she's saying she's not, put her in her place, Jesus. And Jesus Mm. says, she has chosen what is better. She has chosen an education and it will not be taken from her. That's really good. So we can learn something from him. 
I, these are, this is one example of the many thousands of examples of the way the Bible actually speaks to contemporary issues in ways that we have simply forgotten because we stopped seeing it as being a revolutionary book. Wow, that's good. All right, we got just time for a couple more. We're going to try to go quickly. This mm-hmm. is hard to go quickly through this one. Okay. Uh, but what's the Bible's policy regarding illegal immigration, considering many illegal immigrants are only crossing the border for work and survival? So we got mm-hmm. a wall that may or may not be built here. We got a lot of political controversy surrounding it. Yeah. Same kind of, is it the, is it the same? What's the next question? Uh. <laughs> Is, but is it the same kind of thing where it's still the person, not the issue? Yeah, I think it is. So first, we have immigration laws. And they're actually pretty good immigration laws. We should just enforce our current immigration laws. That's one thing. We should not enforce the current laws that are on the books. And they're thoughtful. Should they be reformed? Yeah. Everybody, right, left, centrist, everyone wants reform. Everyone does. But they want it to be their idea. Um, uh, it's funny because if you look at clips of previous presidents, Democratic presidents, they're saying the same thing that Republicans are saying, but now because the Republicans are saying it's wrong. But they were okay then. Now, let's reverse it. If, if it was their idea on the other side of the aisle, we'd say it was wrong because, again, right. us versus them. Um, so one, there's nothing inherently immoral with walls. If there were, then Jerusalem was an immoral city because mm. it had walls. Um, but there is something wrong, I think, When I say wrong, what I mean is there's something overly harsh and non-biblical about the idea of not welcoming in the immigrant or the stranger. Israel itself was given passage through certain countries. As the Hebrews were going through to the promised land, they were given passage through certain countries, and God blessed those who gave them safe conduct through these certain countries so they could come to the promised land. Um, Immigration isn't a bad thing. Legal immigration is great as long as we have a responsible legal system for it. Illegal, of course, is an issue. Some people are coming here to save their own lives, and I get that 100%. The Bible has, has, has a word. It's called love of, it says love of stranger. In the Greek, uh, in uh, a passage, a friend of mine, Eli Garza, pointed this out, a Hispanic pastor in Detroit. He said the, the Bible uses a word. It's called phylloxenia. Phylloxenia means love of the stranger. Do we exhibit love of the stranger, or do we exhibit the opposite of phylloxenia, which is xenophobia, stranger fear? Mm. So we have to make sure we balance responsibly the love of the stranger and the sojourner, while also making sure we keep to the biblical mandate of trying to protect life. So we need, why do we have these uh, immigration laws? To keep out people who just want to use the system to benefit themselves and hurt other people? Benefiting themselves is not a problem. It's not a problem. I don't care if they benefit themselves. I want them to benefit themselves. But if it benefits people and it, them and it hurts other people, that's the issue, which is why we have immigration laws. Um, uh, but those who are refugees as well, we need to carefully weed um, through the system to find out who is here for nefarious purposes, and that's very hard, but who's here for humanitarian purposes, also very hard. But that doesn't mean we just stop it altogether. Difficult doesn't mean leave it untried. Difficult means rise to the occasion. That's what I would say. Yeah. I think it's more of a tension to manage yeah. than it is a problem to solve. I mean, we might not see this, the, the problem solved, but we have to man- manage that right. tension. My parents came here legally. Uh, my dad got his citizenship legally, and there's plenty of people who don't. Uh, but he waited in line. He did his duty. He became a citizen. He learned the civic system. He did all this stuff and is a valuable member of society, contributes to it. Immigration is never an issue. Um, How you go about doing it, that's the issue. And we have to be responsible. This is the tension. 
responsible and compassionate. How do we do both? That's not an easy thing to say, to talk about, nor is it an easy thing to do, which makes it all the more important that we're responsible in how we do it. That's really good. Uh, we got, I'm going to take this one last question and then uh, we're going to dismiss and then I don't know if you're sticking around or you're going to go, but we'll, um, you can always ask more questions. There's some more here. Abdu, if I send you some of these questions that we didn't get to, would you mind uh, answering I'll, them? Or? I'll definitely try my best. Okay. I, um, I have a writing deadline. Okay. Uh, my next book's due on so, April 30th. But we'll try, uh, we'll try to get to make, them. Make a suggestion to you, by the way, just a seamless plug in one degree. We have an online community called RZIM Connect where you connect with other believers who are like-minded, who want to have truth and grace melded into every answer. And we have forums there. Go to, con just look up on Google, RZIM Connect, and you can join. It's like Facebook for people who like each other. So go there. Yeah. <laughs> this last question is kind of a funny one, but it's interesting. It says, um, what do you think about religious tattoos? And the reason why I bring this up is because I think that we have to be very careful not to be legalistic as Christians. And for far too long, legalism ran rampant. And we use things in the Old Testament under Levitical law to tell our kids or other people not to do something like tattoos, even though they're not biblically wrong, because we're not under Levitical law. We're free in Christ. So when, when you're trying to do that, there, there's nothing moral or immoral about a religious tattoo. It's your preference. I don't like needles. That's why I'm not getting, <laughs> I'm not doing it. But um, I think we have to be very careful because we can turn people away. And I've seen a lot of uh, young people leaving the church in their 20s and 30s because they were taught you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. If you don't drink, if you don't smoke, if you don't swear, if you don't get a tattoo, then you're a Christian. And if you do any of those things, you're not a Christian. That's not what Christianity is. It's not about what you're not doing. It's about the Holy Spirit living in you, understanding grace, using your grace to now empower you to live a holy life and a free life. So real quick. How can we not be legalistic in approach certain in our approach to certain things? Well, that goes back to what the, if uh, self-reflection. Um, uh, if you want to go ahead and yell at somebody for having a cross tattooed on their wrist or on their arm, uh, make sure you do it while well, not clean shaven, um, because you shouldn't be shaving your beard. Um, make sure you do it with the different linens in your in your cloak, not mixed up, and don't have cotton and wool. Um, make sure you do that because uh, you know you're calling them out to live to a life that is legalistic, and you better make sure you're as at least Pharisaical as you as you like them to be. Um, so that's very important for us to do this. Right. This sounds condemnatory. I hope you don't feel it that way. It's just important for us to be self-reflective on this stuff. I try this all the time with myself when I'm being judgmental. Um, so. Be, the Bible does say in Matthew chapter 7 that we, are, we can judge. You know, Jesus says that do not judge lest you be judged. He's not saying don't judge. He's saying judge, I want you to, but don't be a hypocrite hmm. when you do it. In other words, don't take the um, hypocritical speck out of your brother's eye when there's big plank sticking in your own. That's what he's saying, essentially. Um, so that's one thing. If we take that seriously, um, I think we can, we can go further, much further, uh, farther, um, further and farther faster. Uh, but I would say this, when you do, if you mark your body with a tattoo or whatever it is, there's always a story behind it. There is a story. Um, and sometimes if it's a butterfly, it doesn't have to be a religious thing. It's a butterfly, let's say. Um, I know someone who has a butterfly at her wrist. And the reason is, is because when her uh, grandma passed, 
uh, her, sorry, her mother passed. She used to be in the Butterfly Club. Mm-hmm. There was like this Butterfly Club thing, and, and it, it is a reminder of her, of her dearly departed. Um, there's nothing, I think, in that message that's bad. Uh, but you have to be careful, because you're up for something. And this is why you won't see a Jesus fish in the back of my car. <laughs> um, I might cut somebody off. Um, those things are witnesses. Yeah. You are witnessing nonstop. Just by being a Christian, you're witnessing nonstop and you're being scrutinized. So make sure, if you can see the John 3.16 on your arm, that you're, you actually live you're like living. you believe it. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. And if a teenager just asks that question to kind of prove to their parents that it's okay to get <laughs> a tattoo, I just want to say, your first response is to honor your father and mother. And so you need to listen to that before you get that tattoo. Don't yep. get me in trouble. I don't want to be the re- I don't want to be my, involved my, my in your conversation. My rule of thumb is if you all. if you have a mortgage, then you have the right. Oh, there you um, go. There you so go. So you have a mortgage, yeah. you can't get your tattoo. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. Do do what your, what your parents <laughs> tell you, but Okay. Thanks again for listening to the Community Christian Church podcast. For more messages like this and other resources, visit us online at cccsterling.org.